to tell John Higginson I'm glad he requested that. And uh, Russ, thank you. Jamie, thank you. And we do submit our lives into those hands of Christ. We're grateful for God's grace. Music is important to us. And some of you who maybe remember some songs from the late 70s, the 1980s, uh, well, it speaks to love. And there was one in 1984, a number one song, I'll share that with you in just a minute, that was the number one on the U.S. charts as well as in Britain, according to Billboard magazine. And it was a classic rock song, and it requests a definition of love. So many songs have been written about love. During the 70s and the 80s, Queen came out, the group Queen, a crazy little thing called love. And then Diana Ross and Lionel Richie uh, with an ode to endless love. And REO Speedwagon. Uh, I used to play guitar in, in the garage of my house, so I know some of these songs. Uh, REO Speedwagon. Keep on loving you. And Tina Turner said, what's love got to do with it? And Huey Lewis in the news says, oh, there is power, the power of love. But that one in 1984 asked this question. I want to know what love is. Maybe that chorus rings in your mind by foreigner. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I want you to show me. Now, the motivation of this song may have been romantic in nature and profit-based. <laughs> but I want to say that it raises a question that I think every one of us has raised. I want to know what love is. And I want someone to show me. <coughs> John says, the apostle John says, God is love. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the power of music because it brings to surface our deepest emotions. It speaks to our spirituality and our longing to be more like you. Thank you that we are in a setting, a community of faith that helps to cultivate our capacity to love. Apart from the body of Christ, this community of faith, we would be limited in our ability to love. But by the power of your Holy Spirit working in all of us, supernatural things can happen. Extraordinary things can happen. And so we put our trust in you. Perfect your love in us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be acceptable unto you, Lord, our strength, the one who loved us so much 
and still does. Amen. Well, John, as we are moving through these epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, we're entitled in this series, Letters from John. Now, these aren't Dear John letters. Uh, these aren't letters from John Horton. Uh, these are letters that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit and inscripted and used through John the Apostle. He was known as the Apostle of Love. In fact, he's referred to in Scripture as the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, he loved all of his disciples, but there was a special affinity between Jesus and John. And he has a focal point of love. We see it threaded in the Gospel of John, and we see it in all three of our letters that we're going to study over the next couple of weeks. And so he does a different kind of writing style. I think John, the apostle, as he writes, is more right-brained than left-brained. Paul tends to list out things. The Apostle Paul says, consider this, and then when you consider this, consider this, and many of them are subsequent to each other, and there's a succinct way in which Paul writes his letters to the different churches. John writes in a literary style that is kind of cyclical. It's as though he is drilling down. He, he's kind of telling a story, if you would, around a theme, and he, and he continues to deepen that subject, the farther along you go in the text. In other words, uh, he talks about that we are faced with an ethical test in the first part of uh, this letter and, and how it's important that we live right. And then he, he'll come back to that. And, and then he talks about a doctrinal test. And it's important to consider what you believe. And, and what you believe helps to inform how you live, and, and, and he'll circle back around to that. But in the beginning, we, we hear him talking about love, and the fourth chapter, he comes back to love. And he's, he's working it as, as a literary cycle, almost like a wash cycle, that it becomes uh, saturated into the hearer's heart. Uh, marinated into the soul of the person that is reading the church, in this case, is Ephesus. And, and John has come to a point later in his life, and he's bringing closure to, to some specific things in his life. One is his earthly life. He knows that he will not be living much longer. He has journeyed with Jesus. He's watched the church unfold over the last 50-some-odd uh, years, and he's seeing some things that are absolutely beautiful and wonderful about the church, but also there are some things that grieve his heart. Uh, there is some division over uh, doctrinal understandings of who Christ is, and these doctrinal disagreements have uh, kind of separated and divided the people, and they're not as unified as, as he thinks they could be. And so he speaks to that relational text. He, he's dealt with ethical, he's dealt with doctrinal, and now he's, he's beginning to say, look, it's important how you relate to one another. 
Uh, ethics are important. No question about it. Uh, doctrine is key. But how we treat each other is the most telling. After all, it's John who recorded the words of Jesus by saying, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. He was known as the apostle of love. And he's calling the church out. And he's saying, well, the tradition tells us that John was physically limited and and as he was still honored and kind of idolized in the church, that, that baby church, that they would bring him to the courtyards of these synagogues and he would be placed there. And they would say, John, tell us something. Tell us something that we need to remember. Last words can be the most important. And in his aged, weaked, weakened voice, he would say, dear children, let us love one another. I got to thinking about what is authentic love. It's so ethereal. It's so abstract. We throw the word around so much. But what is it and what is our capacity to really love? And he's saying to the church, at Ephesus, you have some serious relational issues. Rise above those. I'd love one another. And I want to see your love grow deeper. That's the implicit and explicit message of John. So, as he's running the church at Ephesus, I was thinking about this precious church. Oh, what it has meant to me, and what it means to me today. And if they were evaluating us on marks of love, if we were being put to the test on whether or not we're loving, I, I think in other categories, uh, there would be some high marks. I mean, when I ask you to stand and pass the peace, or John, or Haynes, or Fran, uh, we have to kind of draw you back in because you enjoy being with each other. And it's the kind of thing where people come and, and they, they express that it's a warm church, and it's a friendly church, and, and it appears to be loving. And so I would say that we would get some high marks. I saw the church at work this week. And an act of love. A death that came suddenly. And friends and family surrounded this one person. But the church was out in front. And made all things ready to be able to say goodbye in a very special way. I, I think we're a people of love. But I also think there's work to be done. I also think that as the struggle for loving continues, that we can go deeper. Remember the Bee Gees? 
they had that falsetto sound, did they, Ellen? And, and they would sing, how deep is your love? I really want to know. And I think folks that pass by this intersection are asking that. I think they're asking, are you for real? Is your love authentic? You know, I uh, came across a quote by an Oxford professor, Vaughn Robertson. He said this, when you love people who are like you, that's ordinary. When you love people who are unlike you, that's extraordinary. And when you love people who dislike you, that's revolutionary. Let me read that again. When you love people who are like you, that's ordinary. When you love people who are unlike you, that's extraordinary. When you love people who dislike you, that's revolutionary. And so what I'm hearing from John is that we cannot pick and choose who we are to love. It is easier to love one another. It's easier to love family most of the time. <laughs> Although you don't get to pick your family, do you? And in the church, it's fairly easy to love one another. I think we have a higher tolerance with each other. But what about when God calls love to be courageous, beyond the bounds of comfortable? 1 John 3.16, which is interesting to me because John 3.16, the gospel we know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, 1 John 3.16 says this. He answers that question, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. This is how we know what love is. This is what he says. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then in chapter 4, Haynes read for us, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God didn't just tell us he loved us. God showed us he loved us. By sending his only begotten, beloved, cherished son. You see, love is not just something we think about. It's not something we just talk about. Love really is about what we do. And when we do something, we do it with purpose. Jesus did not just come to dwell in our midst. He didn't just come to say, I and the Father in one. And I just want you to know that there is a living God. And that I have deity as a part of who I am. He did not come for that sole purpose. The sole purpose was to redeem us. Was to save our lives. 
So he showed us, and in displaying his love, it had great purpose behind. So it has a courageousness to it, what I say. And it has a compassion. Isn't it interesting how Jesus embodies, you know, we're at our best and loving when we follow after Jesus. And if we follow after Jesus, we see that he continues to look, as the scripture says, to others with compassion. With compassion. With care. And he doesn't just say, I feel sorry for them, but he engages the one that has a physical infirmity. He engages the one who has sinned desires to repent. He engages the person who's made so many mistakes, and I would say a step further, he loves those that don't even know that he loves them. That's the nature of his love. And so when we show love, I want to delineate a little bit. When you see the guy coming off of the exit, on 475, as you are making a left-hand turn on Eisenhower Parkway, and he's holding up a sign that says, need food, need water, if you hand him a dollar or five dollars, that's, that's an act of kindness. But I really believe compassion is when we say, we want to help you. We want to put you in a position to succeed. Let's help you find a job. Let's get adequate shelter for you. We believe that there are better things for you. See, it's love with a purpose. And John is saying, love is not easy. <laughs> love is work. premarital counseling uh, couples will be enamored by each other the individuals uh, you know just so caught up and in the moment and I'll say now remember love takes work it doesn't just happen there's a purpose Behind it, because you're wanting that other person to be better than they would have been. Because you're in their life. And you're giving of yourself. You see, love costs us something. Jesus said, if you really want to follow me, if you really love me, you must take up your cross. Take up your cross. And follow me. Real love costs us something. In New York City, you'll find the 9-11 Memorial. And I'm amazed, aren't you? Nearly 3,000 people perished that day. And you see the names of each one, and I can still see people rubbing their finger over the engraved names. 
maybe family, maybe neighbors, maybe friends, church members. And there is a part of a ladder truck, ladder company number three, firefighters, first responders. And it was a shift change, and right around 8.30, somewhere in there, maybe a little earlier, there was a shift change with that station in New York City. And those 11 men had heard uh, that something wasn't right, and then at 8.46, tower number one fell, but it was time for them to go, and the new company was coming on, and yet those 11 men said, no, 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 we're in on this. We're going to help. But your shift is done. But their response was, our calling is never done. And so they went with the others from the subsequent shift, and they went right into the heart of where the bombing took place, where the planes had intersected the buildings. And all of those 11 perished, for they went in the building, and it collapsed on that truck, and they have the remains of that truck. When they were setting up that memorial, they had a dedication, and one of the daughters of one of the men who perished said, on this day, my daddy, my father, gave his life for you. He was looking out over an audience of people. And you know she was right. And there are countless others who have paid the price. First responders, heroes and heroines in communities all over the world, those who serve in our armed forces, those who work not only in terms of strategy for military, but also diplomacy and peace, all have given of themselves. They've spoken of a great capacity to, to love. And if you look toward the end of the passage that Haynes read for us, you will find that that capacity, if based in Christ, can be so significant. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. Here's the great news for us, two things. One is, as we think about the great cost of those who gave their lives for us, it points us back to the ultimate sacrificial lamb in Jesus Christ. Because we were in the rubble of our sin and guilt. We had been under attack, and we had failed, and Jesus entered in and gave his life for us. He didn't just talk. He showed what love is. And that same kind of call is upon our lives, a life that is purposefully.
compassionate, courageous. Perfect love casts out all fear. There's no reason to be afraid when we know we're loved. I want to share a personal story with you, and this one's close to me. And I have permission to share this. Over the last six months, I've been in ministry to my daddy. I'm an only child. You've heard me share that. He lives in central Kentucky. He's a hillbilly. But a great man. Fred. I have been given that name. Fred Timothy Stephan. And you know when I was younger, I didn't like it. They wanted me to be called by Tim. I liked that. And, but you know, the more I got to know that man called my father, the more I was honored to bear his name. In his life, he went through much. And as we would close our conversations, and still do, as a male, he did something that not a lot of men do. He will say, Tim, I love you. Well, recently, I, along with my family, had to make some decisions, and one of those was a tough one. Dad, you can't drive anymore. And you're going to need to, for your safety and the safety of others, you're going to need to turn in your keys. I didn't say it quite like that. I just said the car's got to stay in the garage. <laughs> um, Dad, you're not going to be able to live alone. Um, you know, we have some options. You can come live with us in Georgia. We can look at having somebody come in. He, he allowed some of those things to happen. And, and my uncle moved in with him, an 81-year-old looking after an 85-year-old. It's great. <laughs> but that was hard. And there were some moments, and even recently, we were both wrong. He was wrong in that he was losing control. And he was angry. And I was an easy target. I was overzealous. I think I tried to do too much too quickly. And I knew I only had a window of time because I served here as pastor in middle Georgia. And yet, I, I got so much time up there and I need to come back. And so I may have rushed things. And we left on not so good terms recently. And God really spoke to me and said, Tim, you don't have to be right. You just need to do what's right. And you know what helped is I really believe that he meant all those times, Tim, I love you. I was never really afraid of being rejected. I was never really afraid that we would not ever build a bridge to each other. Again, I knew he loved me. And that love casts out fear. And so I wrote him a letter and I said, Dad, I want to, I want to ask you to find a place in your heart to forgive me. And I listed some of the things that made him mad. 
And while I was in staff meeting, he called me back and he said, you know I love you and I too want you to forgive me. Thank you for all you've done. But you know, never once, I knew I needed to do the right thing. And I never feared that he'd ever stop loving me. Because he had always shown it. So today, the love songs cry out. The people are asking the question. I want to know what love is. And I want you to show me. Now, you'll see that last part. Here, here's the end of the message. And I do not want to be the hero. Okay? Let me show you who the hero is in this. Last verse. God lives in us. And his love is perfected. In us. 25 years ago, I could have never written that letter. But Christ and his love being perfected in me, not completed, perfected process, allowed me to do some ordinary, extraordinary, revolutionary things this past week. To God be the glory. So as you face outwardly, as you walk off these premises today, people want to know what love is. Let's show them Christ in us and that we're doers in compassion and in faithfulness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.